Hey, it's in a book. Welcome back. I'm Lawrence Rouse. I am in Raleigh, North Carolina, of course, and you are listening to It's in a Book. This is our third episode. Uh, pretty excited about that. And we have a great book in store for you this episode. It's an author by the name of, or she's an author rather, by the name of Christina Stead. Uh, I learned of Miss Stead. Uh, and I have to interject here that it's it's just amazing uh, the number of great authors and great books that are just kind of lying around out there in, in the unknown reaches of the the literary landscape. You know, the the halls of the the various academies and and uh, just just the incredible world of literature that is unknown to us you know, until someone. Uh, points it out to us or, or uh, clues us into it. Uh, in this case, uh, I'll stop babbling and, and just point out to you that I discovered Christina Stead through uh, my my acquaintance with uh, with Jonathan Franzen. That's sort of a joke. Uh, I, I don't know him at all, but I, I've been following his work for, for quite some time. And uh, in a book of essays of his that I picked up in the Philippines, uh, he did an essay about this incredible book uh, by Christina Stead, The Man Who Loved Children. Uh, he talked about what a great novel it was and uh, just, just something about uh, the way he wrote about it just uh, conveyed the, the passion that he had for it. So I thought I would check it out. Uh, it turned out to be somewhat difficult to get a, a copy of being that I couldn't just head to the local library in the Philippines, I I had to go through a little bit of work to uh, to get a, get my hands on one, but I did, and uh, it turned out to just be a really incredible book. I'll, I'll read you on the copy that I managed to get a hold of, uh, "The Man Who Loved Children" by Christina Stead, introduction by Randall Jarrell. There's a little quote from Jonathan Franzen right on the front. It says, This crazy, gorgeous family novel is one of the great literary achievements of the 20th century. And uh, it probably is. It's, it's just uh, a book that really lays bare the pain and uh, very little joy, unfortunately, in this particular family. But uh, just just lays bare the the pain that can exist in a family when things aren't uh, as they should be, uh, and in, and in this case, uh, it's it's just uh, beautifully and, and wonderfully done um, <clears throat> through the eyes of, <clears throat> for the most part, the main character, Louis, uh, who I believe is is probably Christina Stead, just based on on some of the things that I've read about the the genesis of the book. Uh, Typically, it, it's hard to put too much stock in, into something like that, uh, especially with older works of art. Uh, I suppose we don't really know as much as we'd like to sometimes about about the origin of, of the thoughts therein. Um, but in this case, uh, <clears throat> it, it's pretty apparent, I guess, through historical uh, research and and uh, knowledge of Christina Stead that Louis is in large part based on on her uh, and and the relationship that she had with her, her family. So I'm just going to read you a couple of a uh, couple of little blurbs from the back here. 
Uh, one is by Elizabeth Hardwick. It says, a story of life, faithfully plotted, clearly told, largely peopled with real souls, genuine problems. It is realistically set. Its intentions and drive are openly and fully revealed. It is also a work of absolute originality. And Robert Lowell here on the back also says, It must be a classic, for there are very few novels in English that are as large and as beautifully written. Uh, and I think all of that is true, just based on my own reading of the book. I'm going to read a little more of the back here. Uh, Christina Stead was the author of over a dozen works of fiction and the recipient of the Patrick White Prize. She was born in Australia in 1902 and died in 1983. And then finally, I'm going to read you uh, just a little, little blurb about the book itself. Uh, it goes like this. Sam and Henny Pollitt have too many children, too little money, and too much loathing for each other. As Sam uses the children's adoration to feed his own voracious ego, Henny watches in bleak despair, knowing the bitter reality that lies just below his mad visions. A chilling novel of family life, the relations between parents and children, husbands and wives. The man who loved children is acknowledged as a contemporary classic. So uh, that's what we'll be doing uh, for this episode of It's in a Book, uh, reading about 40 minutes of, of uh, The Man Who Loved Children and interviewing my very good friend, Pete Logan. Uh, he and I had a, a wonderful talk uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, started out about books and, and just kind of went everywhere. I think we talked about baseball and uh, and family even a little bit. Uh, we, we just talked about quite a few things, and uh, I really enjoyed the interview. So we'll also talk a little bit about uh, some current events, uh, what I'm reading right now, what I, what I just finished reading, and uh, a couple other things I have underway. And we'll do all of that right after the break. So it's in a book. Thanks again for coming back to see what it is this fortnight. So, I am cautiously optimistic about the month of May and about my reading in general, about my uh, ability to get some, some books read for the rest of the year. I've sort of recommitted myself to reading with any and available free time, and the results so far have been fairly fruitful. I managed to read already this month The Twelve Tribes of Hattie by Ayana Math Mathis. I'm hoping I'm saying her name correctly. She, she certainly deserves at least that much. Uh, she wrote an incredible novel. Uh, one which I thoroughly enjoyed reading. We'll, we'll get back to that here in just a second. I, I have her personal web page open and I'm just going to hop around on it very quickly and, and uh, share a few things from it. Um, as well, I'm currently reading uh, Agape Agape, or maybe it's Agape Agape, or who knows? I'm going to have to get with some scholar or the other. Uh, with regard to the pronunciation of the title of the William Gaddis novel I'm reading right now. Now, 
The other novel of William Gaddis's that I read, one that I don't think we'll ever actually be able to, to do on the podcast just because it's so incredibly involved and and thick with uh, with meaning and, and counter meaning and uh, it, it is just incredibly lushly dense with uh, significance um, but that novel is the recognitions uh, and uh, oh man you gotta read it sometime but uh, this one starting out so far is is very interesting there uh, it, it seems to be the voice of, of uh, an, an older fellow who is uh, sort of stream of consciousness relaying to us uh, the the work that he's attempting to complete before dying uh, it's, it's very uh, unconventional but I'm enjoying at the very least all the references that he's making uh, reading William Gaddis is, is sort of like uh, if you are predisposed to investigate some of the things that he just kind of drops about uh, it, it's sort of like taking a class uh, he, he must have been just an incredible intellect uh, he certainly looks as much uh, if you ever pull up a picture of him he just looks like a sort of formidable older gentleman you know who walked around the house in a suit uh, probably all day long and uh you know, I had his coffee and, and his paper every morning. Um, you know, all that speculation, of course. But he, he certainly looks like uh, the sort of guy who um, would know as much as he seems to know based on all that I've read of him. Uh, additionally, uh, Agape Agape or Agape Agape or Agape Agape uh, by William Gaddis is, is a pretty short read. I should definitely knock that out here before May is over. I'm also reading The Craft of Fiction by Percy Lubbock. It's uh, an older sort of sort of technical manual for uh, for writers. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And I'm taking that one pretty slowly. It's just kind of lying about, and I, I pick it up here and there uh, as I as I find the time. Um, but uh, it, it's been a, a, a good month so far, and I hope that I'll knock, at the very least, those three titles completely out by the end of May so that I can head into uh, some other things uh, in June. So let's very quickly pop over to Ayana Mathis's homepage, and I'm just going to read a couple of little blurbs here about... Uh, about her book, her, her very incredible book. It's called The Twelve Tribes of Hattie, if I haven't said as much already. Uh, Oprah uh, selected it for her book club 2.0. I think she does her book club uh, on on her on her website now. Um, but Ayana Mathis's website is ayanamathis.com. Uh, it's uh, it's pretty slick here. Uh, it's just her name across the top, and then you see home, Arthur, book reviews press events contact um she lives in brooklyn and uh and works in brooklyn uh so i i envy her that i love new york city uh, i used to go there every year as a kid haven't been as often as an adult but it's, it's just a beautiful city just full of life uh, as as i'm sure you all know um but let's go ahead and read a couple of blurbs here. Uh, the Twelve Tribes of Hattie is a vibrant and compassionate portrait of a family hardened and scattered by circumstance, and yet deeply a family. Its language is elegant in its purity and rigor. The characters are full of life, mingled thing that it is, 
and dignified by the writer's judicious tenderness towards them. This first novel is a work of rare maturity, and that's by Mary Lynn Robinson, uh, author of Gilead, which I haven't read. Uh, so if any of you have, maybe uh, you know uh, you know how much stock to put in that. Um, uh, let's see here. <clears throat> if I can find someone I know uh, or have read who also has a blurb. Uh, I can't, but this name kind of sticks out to me, so I'll read this one. Miss Mathis has a gift for imbuing her character's stories with an epic dimension that recalls Toni Morrison's writing, and her sense of time and place and family will remind some of Louise Erdrich, but her elastic voice is thoroughly her own, both lyrical and unsparing, meditative and visceral, and capable of giving the reader nearly complete access to her characters' minds and hearts, and that was written by... Machiko Kakutani. Kakutani. Uh, wow, uh, some names here. You know, um, <clears throat> excuse me, of, of the New York Times. And I'm just going to veer off course here just a little bit based on that blurb and, uh, and talk about Toni Morrison and Louise Erdrich. Uh, I hope I'm saying her name correctly because I, I read a ton of her books in college and I recently read uh, another one. Um, excuse me. Um, she She's a beautiful woman too. She... <laughs> in as much as that has anything to do with anything but I, I point out as much because uh portraits of her inner youth uh remind me very much of, of my wife um they they get past for sisters even um so at any rate <clears throat> i chose that quote uh the one by uh michiko kakutani uh by because it uh it compared uh ayana mathis to tony morrison and uh, I, I have to talk about Toni Morrison just for a second because I didn't really get into reading Toni Morrison until I made the acquaintance of a playwright in Washington, uh, a wonderful friend of my family. Her name is uh, Rosalind Bell. And it, it wasn't so much that I, I, you know, had any any reason not to read Toni Morrison it, so much as that I had just never taken the time to. And, uh, you know, being a, a, a male um I'd read a fair amount of, of uh, female authors, but for some reason I had just never picked up any Toni Morrison. Well, uh, Rosalind really let me have it for, for being a scoundrel and not reading Toni Morrison. And in the course of, uh, of talking about her, you know, we talked about some, some of the people out there who've said like, really nasty things about her work, uh, um, which, which really surprised me. Um, but I have actually encountered a few of those things. Uh, and, and so it, it really... Uh, ignited a little curiosity in me to, to find out if, uh, you know, she was sort of a, a, a paper tiger of, of the literary world, uh, um, you know, so so imbued with, with uh, all that she is, uh, merely because uh, she's a black woman, you know, uh, something which I didn't think was true, but, but that's just sort of the, uh, sort of, some of the the sentiment behind some of the nastier things that I had read about her work, but uh, but I read her work and and it's amazing and and incredible and and she's just a, a wonderful writer, uh, and uh, and her voice is is beautiful and poignant and and full of uh, the the pathos that uh, that sometimes goes along with with being African American, um, and. Uh, so uh, I guess that's all I have to say about that, but I, I had to share that with you because uh, 
uh, you know, like I said, uh, I've read uh, from from two or three different sources some some things about uh, Toni Morrison's work that really bothered me, especially now that I've read so much of it. I've read all but a couple of her books now, and uh, and she's incredible. So, um, <clears throat> and so is Ayanna Mathis, uh, bringing this whole thing to an end. So I know I got into a, a bit of a rant and a babble there, but. Um, there it is. Uh, go pick up the Twelve Tribes of Hattie, and and read it. You won't be disappointed. And uh, and that is uh, current events for the month of May, or or for this fortnight. Um, I'll see you after the break. So. Uh, Tonight, we have the pleasure of welcoming to the studio, a.k.a. my home office, uh, a good friend of mine uh, who goes by the name of Pete Logan. Uh, Pete and I have known each other now for, around, what, 11, 12 years, Pete? You're going to edit out my last name, aren't you? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. <laughs> going with an alias, man. <gasps> Pete's afraid the zombies will be able to find him. Um, no, it's not the zombies. The zombies have no sense. <laughs> Who is it? I don't know. Big Brother? Anyone? <laughs> Big Brother is definitely not listening to this podcast. So. You say that now. On with the show, Pete. So, speaking of Big Brother, Pete and I met under uh, pretty funny circumstances. Since we're uh, now both upstanding members of society who pay for cable... Uh, I think I can tell the story that uh... <laughs> not when you use my last name. <laughs> All right, so enough of that. If you knew there was no statute of limitations, okay. <laughs> Don't you have like at least two family members who are lawyers? Oh yeah. yeah, probably more than that, right? But not in the state. Okay, okay, enough about that. So Pete is gonna uh, talk to us about some books, uh, uh, as as do all interviewees who. who make their way down to my uh, first floor office so we'll we'll just get started with that right now um, Pete uh, I already let you take a look at uh, at this list of five questions um, so I'm gonna go ahead and start reeling those off to you and you just answer them as you see fit and, uh, and we'll go from there um, we're gonna add something new tonight uh, Pete is going to read from a poem uh, that he brought with him at the end of the interview, so uh, so that should be nice. Maybe we'll add it as a regular, regular okay. feature. And you only gave me the questions; you didn't give me the answers. Yeah, right. So it's not like cheating. <laughs> Here we go, Pete. So, first question: It's a busy world these days. Uh, how do you find the time to read? Uh, when I can, it's really just because it's relaxing, you know. So I like to find have something. I like to try and read a couple things at once, and I like to read something that I can pick up for five or ten minutes read it and then put it down where I don't have to necessarily set aside an hour because some books you get into and it's hard to stop reading them right right so I have that problem that's where like something like a David Sedaris mm -hmm. where they're just you know short little anecdotes right um, you know I'd like to find more things like that right nice nice Kristen uh, is, a, is a huge fan of David Sedaris she just uh, picked up his new book are you, are you tracking that one uh, the last one I bought was um, I didn't like it that much. It was squirrels and something or other. Right. And I wasn't that crazy about it. I liked um, his older stuff. Um, like, Me Talk Pretty One Day. Right. Dress Your Family Corduroy. 
Um, and I also like, because we live here in Raleigh, a lot of his stuff from his childhood was from this area. Right, so right. kind of interesting. Yeah, he, he and his sister are both from, from Raleigh, right? The whole family, and the only one who, they were born in upstate New York, but then um, the father was moved down with IBM, mm-hmm. the Triangle. Okay, I never uh, knew that. In the what, early, mid, mid to late 60s or so. Right. Um, but the youngest brother apparently did grow up here. Right. His nickname, that's the one named The Rooster. And I'll <laughs> Wasn't tracking around. it. What? Yeah. Now, is, are they are they Sedaris Hardwood? Is that? Yeah. That, that's, same Sedaris? That's the Rooster. Is, that's, oh, that's the Rooster. That's huh? the youngest brother. Who oh, wow. Is apparently completely, he's sort of, you know. Be careful what you say. He's, the char- he's a character. <laughs> him I have seen. Um, right. I haven't actually met him, but I've seen him uh, in story. I knew who that was. Right. Yes. Uh, heart, uh, floor salmon. Yeah, yeah. I see. I see the floor. The, the, the flooring trucks everywhere. Rooster. Yeah, the rooster. Nice. Nice. Allison Chains. Is that is that Allison Chains? The rooster. That song. I, I don't think that's where it caught. That's right. not where he got his name from. Yeah, I'm. I'm sure. I'm sure. I don't believe because so. his brother David has described his accent as a mix of uh, like a Detroit rapper. And a redneck, right? So interesting. Huh. I mean, is that like is he Eminem? Ooh, yeah. <laughs> Eminem doesn't really sound like he's from the South, though. I, yeah, I know. I was, that was a bad joke. Bad joke. All right, Pete. So you kind of already answered this, but I'm going to ask you anyway. How do you decide what to read? Like, like where do the, most of the books that you choose come from? Um, either from authors that I've already read that I enjoyed. Um, sometimes recommendations from other people that I never read mm-hmm. or sometimes from um, interview shows mm. you know I mean there are things like sometimes on uh, uh, The Daily Show right time, you know he has writers on really I never knew that and then uh, yeah, like one of them was uh, uh, The World is Flat I think which is about how technology because you have better access to technology now in um more out of the way places right someone you know living in say a third world country or further out isn't it at as much of a disadvantage as they were before mm-hmm. the technology that we have now right so right the playing field has been leveled yeah yeah what who's that guy uh the Khan academy are you are you familiar with that at all i've heard of it hey, i think i think he's from india he does like this uh like pretty much teaches anything and everything that uh that you can imagine uh, online, like he has these classes you can you can subscribe to, or I don't think it's you subscribe. You just go to his website. I think Bill Bill Gates gave him a huge chunk of money to uh, to you know carry on with that. I think so. Um, but yeah, so yeah, that's that's pretty cool. Um, what was I going to say? Hey, haven't you read a book that I recommended to you? Um, was it was it Freedom by Jonathan Franzen? Did you? Re- I think you recommended the. Um- second one which i think i picked up and haven't read or the third yeah. one freedom we, Free- well i mean uh, we, both, we both read the first one at about the same time right and the first one was uh um uh gosh this is driving me nuts i, I really like jonathan franzen and that was on a book list. ebooks um it's hold on it's right behind me i'm gonna turn around and look behind me it's uh the corrections the corrections yeah. yeah. So I mean, and and everyone who who's familiar with Jonathan Franzen knows that wasn't really the first. Like I think he wrote three three books before he got really uh, you know big. One was called Strong Motion. One was called the the twenty seventh or, or some number city um, about St. Louis or something like that. And then uh, I think there was one other one, but the corrections was like 
Jonathan Franzen. You know, that's when you know, Jonathan Franzen became Jonathan Franzen. Yeah. So and, right. Well, <laughs> yeah. Let's not get into that. <laughs> Why? That was funny, and he rest- he went back on all of it and said, I-, "I was sorry. I was kind of a jerk about that." Right. And right. The well, next his next book, next book out, I think, was on her book club, and he was happy to have it. There. Yeah. And I mean, it's an incredible book. Uh, so I I thought you'd already read that. You you better. It's, no. Oh I, man. I know it's in somewhere in all the stuff that's packed away that needs to be unpacked right oh man i love that book i've read it like two or three times already and the first time i read it i was on a plane on my way to bangladesh and and i got on board and started it and it was so good and so infuriating and and just so you know i was so involved with the characters that i didn't go to sleep on the whole flight i just finished the book so um but sign up a good book yeah yeah absolutely so go jonathan franzen um all right, so talk a little bit about books as objects. Uh, how many do you have? Do you prefer paper, digital, that that sort of thing? I know you have uh, a barrister's cabinet that you showed me and you picked up uh, in upstate New York. It, it, very beautiful. Is it, is it full of books already? Tell, tell me about it. It's not actually a barrister. It was just, it kind of looks that way. It's not actually, because the barrister's cabinet would be with the glass and all that. Right, right. Um, that one's about full. Yeah. I still have a lot of books back the way that I haven't unpacked yet. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as digital versus paper, I really haven't gotten any. I haven't read any online. Shoe, buddy. I, I don't have a Kindle or anything else. Right. I, I'm not using my laptop currently. Right. So to actually sit at a in a chair and read off the screen, I think I, it would lose some of what makes books books. Right. Right. Um, you know, I, there are some things. I felt that way until I got the the e-reader that we have. Um, the certainly, I agree with you about the color version. We have two of them. Uh, they're made by the, the same company, and we have a, a color version and a black and white version. The the color version is definitely like you're reading on a screen, but the black and white one is just like reading on paper, and it's so comfortable. And you know, like you can take as many books as you want when you, when you travel, and and that's a big deal these days with with all the the fees for for extra weight with luggage and that sort of thing. Yeah, I could see that, or if I could actually hold it. But even to, to try and read it off of even a laptop screen, I don't think it would be the same. Right. I'll, I'll let you borrow my uh, my black and white one, um, so you can read Freedom, and, uh, and you you can let me know what you think. So, all right. So, uh, next question: What's your favorite book of all time, and why? And I hope you have a favorite. I have a couple. It's kind of hard. It's kind of like kind of like asking me what my favorite music would be or favorite song. But it had to do with my mood. Um, it by Stephen King certainly, yeah, pretty much always comes to mind. I love that book. Um, I've read that one probably two or three times now. Right. Um, I like uh, Grando by John Gardner. Yeah, I've read yeah, that a number I, of times. yeah. I've read that twice. Really, really love it. Um, you know, and I've picked up some other books by him that I've wanted, you know, that right. I need to read. Have you Have you read his book on on writing fiction? I, I can't remember no. um, what it's called. I mean, no, I, I guess you'd have to be a writer one. to be interested in that. Another fictional book is I started reading it. It just had some kind of weird character that just kind of he's like a hitchhiker or something or some person who just sort of wanders in this town. I've read about the first 20 pages of it. Right. another John Gardner's out of honor. Yeah. I keep reading books, picking them up, and then putting them down again. I'm, I'm experiencing that right now, unfortunately. And I can remember where I was. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know 
when I was taking classes at state, I would try not to study for more than 50 minutes or an hour at a time. Mm-hmm. So to take a break, I would read fiction. Right. So I started trying to go over books from high school that I should have read that never, they never did. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And one of them was Moby Dick. Uh, and I can still remember about where I am in Moby Dick. You haven't finished it yet? No, it's probably been 15 years, 20 years now. Yeah. Oh, but man. even like with uh, the Dark You gotta Tower. finish it. Well, The Dark Tower. Stephen, Stephen King? King. Right. He finishes off about 15, 20 pages on sort of a cliffhanger. You know, like a Sopranos ending or... Right. Or your, uh, I think no they all in that way, each one of them. For Stephen King? Yeah. Uh, no, he has some definite endings in some of them. How, so how many does. books is it? Is it five or... Seven. Seven? Wow. I think it was seven wow. because he read, he wrote his first... What happened was that uh, the Dark Tower series started out when he was about 18 or 19. Mm-hmm. He came up with the idea from... Um, uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, but he wanted something like that, but set in a, we- a Western setting. Right. Wait, and isn't there a poem too? Child Roland to the Dark Tower came. Is, is it Browning? Robert Browning? Uh, I don't know. I think it is. And it's, um, yes. And it's because it's the same guy that did, um, I think it's the same poet that did um, it, the poem. There's a John Wayne movie, uh-huh. Ride Boldly Ride. I think it was like El Dorado. Right. And it's, I think it's the same poet. Right. I'm, um, I'm going to have to look into that. I'm, I'm, I used to know the poem a little, but. But as, so as an 18 or 19 year old, Stephen King realized that he didn't have the life experience or the talent to do this justice. Mm-hmm. So he ended up writing the first two or three, I think, mm-hmm. and then put him aside. Mm-hmm. And then in, what was it? 99, 2000, whatever it was, when he was out walking in Maine, was hit by the car. Right. Ooh. And it was actually reported in the paper that he had passed away. Hmm. It was that serious of an injury. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Well, and, I mean, I, don't, I remember sort of when it happened, but it was. Yeah, I remember I mean, how he terrible was in a coma it was. For a great deal of time, and you yeah. know, I know he's been writing again. I don't know if it's quite the same. Yeah. Well, yeah, he's, but he's it, been writing a lot. It got him to the point where he realized, you know, like the character in Misery, that if he were to have left the Dark Tower where it was. He owed those characters more. Right, right. So he actually went back, and that's what seeing, you know, thinking of this accident where he could have died, never had a chance to finish it. Yeah. But he finished out the books, and so he finished with about 15 pages left of before. There's another 15 pages that were sort of he was told to add. Right. Because it, it ends on a cliffhanger. The whole I, thing, you mean? The dark tower. Oh yeah, it yeah. ends. Very- well, I've read, I've read it all, and the I wouldn't exactly no, call it a cliffhanger. There's a spot about 15 to 20 pages from the end of the book, right? Where Stephen King says, "I'm done, readers. This is where I would end if I, you know, if if I were not being, you know, paid to do this, right? You know, if this wasn't my publishers or editors telling me, yeah, I would end right here. But this is what they want because they want closure on these characters. Yeah, I stopped read that. And yeah, it's been like ten years. So, so you you stopped where he was. I where he where thought you should said. stop. You yes. you want me to tell you how uh, how it, how it no, ends? It's not much of a spoiler. It's uh, it it was kind of frustrating, uh, but but entirely appropriate. I'm I'm glad the uh, I'm glad the publishers made him do it. It's it's entirely uh, appropriate. Right, right, that's I'm, all I'll say about it. I'm gonna go back and reread it. Right. But I wish that I had known before I started reading, reading Stephen King mm-hmm. that that's where it started. Right, because almost every other book that he's done, or work of fiction, 
either at elements or characters in the Dark Tower. Right, right. Yeah. So it's, now, have you read the dra- is it is it the Dragon's Fang dragons, or dragons the Dragon's Tale or Tooth or something, or something like that? I have read that one. It was yeah. okay. Yeah, right. It's a children's book. I'm not I'm not sure if it's part of the whole Stephen King universe. Like I don't, I don't know if it figures. It, I, does it figure into the, the Dark Tower too? I think there were. I think he listed stuff about like the Red Queen or the. There were things in that right. that had to do with it, but even it, parts of Atlantis. I mean, almost any of his actual novels. Yeah, I think even some of the short stories or right. novellas that he's done. Yeah, it, isn't he? Doesn't he make an appearance or two in uh, in the Dark Tower? Yeah, too? that yeah. that bothers kind me. Kind of, uh, he, aka, uh, uh, gosh, he calls the it New York Dave. trilogy. Well, he. The word that he used was Deus Ex Machina. Right. Which God was, in the Machine. Right. right. Where, I mean, he explains it, and it was kind of annoying. But, you know, I mean, that was kind of the way, I guess, he needed to do it yeah. as a literary device. You you should read the New York trilogy by, uh, gosh, he's one of my favorite authors, and I'm not going to be able to think of his name right now. Um, but he, where's my phone? I'm going to look Bradley? it up. No, no, keep keep talking, Pete. But uh, it's the New York trilogy. Uh, it the pretty much the whole thing is about this uh, this sort of meta meta uh, fictive or meta fiction device sort of. It, it's really uh, really incredible what the Arthur does with that whole idea of the story within the story and, and the story uh, without. Uh, Paul Auster. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So was, yeah, I, I think I've talked to him about him before. What was the one? I think I told you the one about New York. The um, it's a guy who wrote for. He was. It may still be a writer for the Post. I think. Mm-hmm. It's either Breslin or one of the other ones. And he wrote a story about a character who um, becomes immortal, but he's trapped on the island of Manhattan. Hmm. So it's not a bad like, place to be if you're immortal, I would say. It was kind of interesting because he goes from uh, the revolutionary period and he actually deal. you know, he meets George Washington, uh-uh. you know, it's house in a park and then like bus speed and it keeps going on and on. And he actually, it went through 9-11. Right, right. You know, it was kind of towards the end of the book. It was a good, that was a good book. Yeah. Um, hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. So... All right, Pete. Well, there's only one more question. You ready for it? Sure. All right. What are you reading right now? Um, probably all the books that I haven't finished are still in my head. But in addition to <laughs> what, uh, what, what did you put down to, to come over and, and uh, you know, or put down a couple of days ago, or what, what have you most recently had your fingers on? Either Zombie Survival Guide or uh, Sixty Feet Six Inches. Right. Right. 60 feet 6 inches I've read the zombie survival guy so tell me about 60 feet 6 inches it's an interview the book is uh, Bob Gibson and Reggie Jackson talking baseball mm. and it was actually Bob Gibson's idea right who was just this very kind of when he pitched they actually changed the rules in baseball mm-hmm. pitching because he pitched so well mm. one of the seasons was so good that they I believe they lowered or raised the mound and reduced the size of the strike zone right wow he, so he was, just, he was just like Nobody could hit him. Nobody could hit him for the, He had a. I think his ERA was 1.2, 1.28. It was in that range where Chapman was, or Aldis Chapman was with Colorado four or five years ago that they talked about. There's been a couple pitchers. I always forget what a baseball nerd you are. Got into that. Well, okay. In part of this book, it's so cool that you know I've been a lifelong Yankees. Not much is cool about baseball. 
Keep going. I'm it's sorry. It's a great pastoral game. It's very, it's, you know, it's involved. You actually have to watch the whole game. Right, right. It's very subtle. Yeah. Because, like, within the first couple pages of this book, in talking to Reggie Jackson, um, they were playing um, the Baltimore Orioles in New York. Uh-huh. It's bottom of the ninth, and it was like 1-1. Um, it seems like I've heard this story before. Oh wait, it, it's every baseball story. Go ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry. It's really. <laughs> I'm, I'm really bad. Go ahead. He's up against this pitcher that he's never had good luck against. Uh-huh. So the count becomes three balls and no strikes. Now, normally at this point, he'd have the green light to do whatever he wants, mm-hmm. swing away. He does, but instead he plays it up and looks at the third base coach and gets upset visibly, as if. Reggie Jackson given, does? Yes, Reggie Jackson. As if he was given the take sign. Right. That he's not allowed to swing. Uh-huh. He gets so into it, he looks into the dugout. He's so upset. The announcers are even saying this. Right. Pitcher lays just the pitch right over the plate. Home run. Oh, uh, so he's winning the game. <laughs> Jedi mind trick? Jackson totally set him up. Oh, that's and awesome. I remember All right. this. I, I like that. As a kid. And Gibson goes through the same thing where he would kind of squint in at the plate. I think part of it was he said he had enough trouble seeing the signs. Uh-huh. It wasn't totally... I mean, he didn't want the hitters to be comfortable. Right. Just like the batter doesn't want the pitch to be comfortable. Uh-huh. And this is what this book is about. Gibson would never talk to opposing players to the point where he were, they were playing, I think it was uh, Pittsburgh. Uh-huh. And this rookie comes up to him towards the end of Gibson's career, hands him a baseball. Mr. Gibson, could I have your autograph? Gibson grabs the ball and just throws it away. <laughs> Nice. So it's kind of funny that he's now so open to talking about, you know, baseball that he actually was the impetus of this book. Yeah. That he said that the person he wanted was Reggie Jackson. Right. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting. That's kind of cool. Yeah. I had an instructor like that in the Q course. His name was uh, Sergeant Simbura, and he he refused to look any of us in the eye the whole time. Have I told you this story? No. So imagine spending uh, like two, uh, almost two months with uh, with someone. Uh, who is who's teaching you everything he knows about small unit tactics, um, but he refuses to look you in the eye. I mean, like when he would talk to us, he w- he would look anywhere and everywhere except in our faces, and, and it was it got to the point where it was like so awesome. Like we we'd all be talking about, it, like you, you think something's wrong with him? You think you know, like you think he's crazy, or or do you, you know, like you think he's, he has some sort of social disorder? And uh, so finally, I, I was the oldest guy there, and um, at the end of the the block of training, he had to give us these uh, these these uh, you know, sort of summaries of how we'd done. So he just took us all out back. We sat down Indian style, one in front of the other. Uh, and, you know, once again, he's, he's telling me how I've done over this whole block of training and he's refusing to look me in the eye. And so finally I, I just broke down and I was like, Sergeant Burr, why, why don't you ever look us in the face? You know, and he's, he like, he looks up a lot when he, when he do it, you know, and he looked down and he looks me straight in the eye. And, and he tells me why, and then he refuses to look me in the face again until, you know, like later when I finish the Q course. So I, I won't tell you why, but uh, but it, it was funny. So, yeah. So it's, it was a great tactic, though. It, it really got well, in our heads. Right, a lot of mind games to go into anything like pool. Right. You, you got some stuff like that for your pool? Well, pool a lot stuff? of times I'm very deliberate and I may play slow, and sometimes that's part of a tactic. Other times I may play very fast. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes I won't even talk to my opponent. Sometimes I'll joke around with them. Right. And like people that don't know me on my own team uh-huh. start giving me a hard time. They're like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm right. Right. Because you know, I think, of, yeah, I know that 
part of it goes into it. You know, like I'll intentionally not shave my goatee before we go to cities because <laughs> if people don't know me, right, right, more and they see like the food in there and stuff, and that. <laughs> just kidding. Pete. Or when I dye it all purple, feet is well groomed. Except he, I think you have dyed it all purple before, right? No, I went all white. I was going to be Santa Claus. Okay, okay. And it, it was hard to get white. Right. I ended up just like bleach blonde. Mm. I remember that. I remember that well. Yeah, you look like a biker or something. So. Actually, it made bouncing a lot harder. It was interesting when my beard was blonde like that. Uh-huh. People gave me a lot more of a hard time. They were less likely to just kind of, when I told them to walk away. Right. Or, you know, people were much more confrontational with me when my beard was that color. Right. Weird. I'm, I wonder why. What do you think, though? What do you attribute that to? Less intimidating. Right. Yeah, as opposed to the the gray beard, red, you know, on top sort of Viking thing you have going on right now. Yeah. So. All right, Pete. Well, we're almost done. Uh, um, you gonna read this poem to us? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I just mentioned bouncing since this is where I actually heard this first was from a documentary about bouncers called Behind the Velvet Rope. Okay. And one of the bouncers recited this. It's a Robert Service poem called "The Men Who Don't Fit In." Mm-hmm. There's a race of men that don't fit in, a race that can't stay still. So they break the hearts of kith and kin, and they roam the world at will. They range the field, and they rove the flood, and they climb the mountain's crest. There's a curse of the gypsy blood, and they don't know how to rest. If they just went straight, they might go far. They are strong and brave and true, but, they are, but they're always tired of the things that are, and they want the strange and new. They say, could I find my proper groove? What a deep mark I would make. So they chop and change, and each fresh move is only a fresh mistake. And each forgets as he strips and runs with a brilliant, fitful pace. It's the steady, quiet, plodding ones who win in the lifelong race. And each forgets that his youth has fled, forgets that his prime has passed, till he stands one day with a hope that's dead, in the glare of the truth at last. He has failed, he has failed, he has missed his chance. He has just done things by half. Life's been a jolly good joke on him, and now is the time to laugh. Ha ha, he is the one of the legion lost. He was never meant to win. He is a rolling stone, and it's bred in the bone, and he's a man who won't fit in. Hmm. Nice. Why, why, did, why does that poem speak to you? It's very Irish, actually. Yeah. My brother and I talk about this a lot. Right. About this poem? Or about that the idea? And sentiment in general. Right. That, right. you know, you, in some ways, you know, um, kind of that whole mindset. Mm-hmm. Are, are you a man who doesn't fit in, Pete? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you fit with me, Pete. So. Thank you. <laughs> For what it's worth. All right, Pete. Well, uh, I guess that's the end, brother. Um, I'm so glad you came by tonight to uh, to to talk about books and uh, and baseball. Surprisingly, and it's that uh, time of year. Yeah, yeah. I guess it is. I guess it is. Isn't it always that time of year? Do they ever stop baseball? Was like a week this year? No, not as much because we had the World Baseball Classic, and normally we get a little bit more. Yeah, like like a week and a half or something like that free of baseball. Well, it'll actually go from now November through. Uh, what winter meetings are the end of January, I believe. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so but Major League Baseball, the station's always on. Yeah, you know, there's always something for me to watch on there. Right, right. Yeah. 
All right, man. Well, uh, thanks. Thanks again for uh, for coming out. And uh, I'm I'm really excited to get this up on the web. I, I think it's uh, it's going to be uh, be awesome to listen to for anyone. So uh, um, I'll uh, I'll see you soon. And uh, and uh, that's it. That's oh, it. thank you for having me for your mad little studio down here. Cats and all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I'm going to be My able to edit buddy. that out. Yeah. You take him home with you. I would. I think your wife would get mad. Yeah, she would. She would. All right, man. I'm going to turn this thing off. Thanks. It was fun. Yeah. The Man Who Loved Children. A novel by Christina Stead. Chapter 1. 1. Henny Comes Home All the June Saturday afternoon, Sam Pollitt's children were on the lookout for him as they skated round the dirt sidewalks and seamed old asphalt of R Street and Reservoir Road that bounded the deep-grassed acres of Tahoga House, their home. They were not usually allowed to run helter-skelter about the streets, but Sam was out late with the naturalists, looking for lizards and salamanders round the Potomac Bluffs. Henrietta, their mother, was in town. Bonnie, their youthful aunt and general servant, had her afternoon off, and they were being minded by Louisa, their half-sister, eleven and a half years old, the eldest of their brood. Strict and anxious when their parents were at home, Louisa, when left in sole command, was benevolent, liking to hear their shouts from a distance while she lay on her belly, reading at the top of the orchard, or ambled, wool-gathering about the house. The sun dropped between reefs of cloud into the Virginia woods, a rain frog rattled, and the air grew damp. Mother coming home from the Wisconsin Avenue car with parcels was seen from various corners by the perspiring young ones who rushed to meet her, churring on their skates, and who convoyed her home, doing figures round her, weaving and blowing about her, or holding to her skirt, and Mary in spite of her decorous irritations. I come home and find you tearing about the streets like mad things. They poured into the house, bringing in dirt, suppositions, questions, legends of other children, and plans for the next day, while Louie, suddenly remembering potatoes and string beans neglected, slunk in through the back door. Henrietta took a letter off the hall stand, a letter addressed to her, to Mrs. Samuel Clemens Pollitt, which she tore open, muttering, with a half-smile, The fool! She went into the long dining room to read it, while Saul, technically the elder of the seven-year-old twins, hung from the chair back, saying, Who's it from, mother? Who's it from? and his twin, straw-headed Samuel, tried to wrest her handbag from her, meanwhile repeating, 
Can I look in your bag? Can I look in your bag? Can I? When she heard him, at last, she relinquished the worn old cowhide bag and went on reading, without paying the least attention to their excited examination of her keys and cosmetics, nor to ten-year-old Ernest, her firstborn, who after counting her money and putting it into little piles, said sagely, Mother has two dollars and eighty-two cents. Mother, when you went out, you had five dollars and sixteen cents, and a stamp. What did you buy, Mother? They heard Louisa coming, chanting, Hot tea, hot tea, make way there, and shifted a quarter of an inch on their hams. Louis picked her way carefully through their mitts, carrying a large cup of tea, which she put down in front of her stepmother. Did anyone come or telephone? The paint came, mother. Louis stopped in the doorway. It's in the wash house. Is he going to start painting and messing everything up tomorrow? Henrietta asked. Louis said nothing, but moved slowly out. Mother, you spent $2.34. What did you buy? What's in this parcel, mother? Evie asked. Oh, leave me alone. You're worse than your father. Henrietta took off her gloves and began to sip her tea. This was her chair and also the one that all visitors sought. It was straight but comfortable, not too low, and set between the corner window and that cushioned bench which ran along the west wall. The children would line up on this bench and hang entranced on the visitor's life story. Visitors looked awkward there, arrayed in the accidents of life's put-together and rough-and-tumble, laughing uncouthly, unexpectedly, at imbecile jokes, giving tongue to crackpot idioms, yet they thought themselves important, and it appeared that as they ran about the streets, things happened to them. They had knots of relations with whom they argued, and sweethearts to whom they cooed. They had false teeth, eyeglasses, and operations. The children would sit there staring with mouth open and gulping, till Henny snapped, Are you catching flies? When Henny sat there, on the contrary, everything was in order, and it was as if no one was in the house. It was like the presence of a somber, friendly old picture that has hung on a wall for generations. Whenever Sam was out, particularly in the afternoon, Henny would sit there, near the kitchen, where she could get her cups of tea hot, and superintend the cooking. The children, rushing in from school or from the orchard, would find her there, quiet, thin, tired, with her veined, long olive hands clasped round the teacup for warmth, or gliding, skipping through wools and needles as she knitted her pattern into bonnets and booties for infants who were always appearing in the remote world. Then she would be cheerful and say to them in her elegant, girlish, 
spitfire way. A fool for luck, a poor man for children, eastern shore for hard crabs, and niggers for dogs. And I have a little house, and a mouse couldn't find it, and all the men in our town couldn't count the windows in it. What is it? When she had asked the riddle, she would smile archly, although they all knew the answer, for Henny knew very few riddles. But these dear little rigmaroles would only come out when Daddy was out. At other times, they would find her ugly, with her hair pushed back and her spectacles on, leaning over a coffee-soiled white linen tablecloth. She would have no others thinking colored ones common, darning holes or fixing the lace on one of her lace covers inherited from Monacy, her old Baltimore home. Then she would growl, If you stand there staring at me, I'll land you one to send you flying, or don't gabble to me about the blessed snakes. It's bad luck to have snakes, and he always keeps snakes for pets. Now Henny sent little Evie running to get her hand lotion and nail buff, while she discontentedly examined her great agate nails and complained about flecks in them and an injured half-moon. I don't know what I go to that woman in the arcade for. She hacks my cuticle, too. You have money on your tea, Moth, said Saul cheerfully. Yes, that's good and she carefully lifted the circle of froth to her mouth in her teaspoon. But it broke, and at this she gave an irritated cry. Oh, there, now I won't get any. The cup was a cup that their father had seen in a junk shop near P Street. Old, heavy china with the word mother on it, between bunches of roses, and he had made them buy it for her for her last birthday. Henny sat dreaming with the letter in her lap. She was not nervous and lively like the Pollets, her husband's family, who, she said, always behaved like chickens with their heads cut off, but would sit there, so gracefully languid, except to run her fingers over the tablecloth, tracing the design in the damask, or to alter her pose and lean her face on her hand, and stare into the distance, a commonplace habit which looked very theatrical in Henny, because of her large, bright eyeballs and thin, high-curved black eyebrows. She was like a tall crane in the reaches of the river, standing with one leg, crooked and listening. She would look fixedly at her vision, and suddenly close her eyes. The child watching, there was always one, would see nothing but the huge eyeball in its glove of flesh, deep sunk in the wrinkled skull hole, the dark circle round it, and the eyebrow far above, as it seemed, while all her skin, unrelieved by brilliant eye, came out in its real shade, burnt olive. She looked formidable in such moments, in her intemperate silence, the bitter set of her discolored mouth 
with her uneven, slender gambler's nose and scornful nostrils, lengthening her sharp oval face, pulling the dry skin folds. Then, when she opened her eyes, there would shoot out a look of hate, horror, passion, or contempt. The children, they were good children, as everyone said, would creep up so as not to annoy her and say at her elbow, Moth, can Whitey come in? Or some such thing. And she would start and cry, What do you mean sneaking up on me like that? Are you spying on me like your father? Or, Get out of my sight before I hand you one, you creeper. Or, What do you mean trying to frighten me? Is it supposed to be funny? And at other times, as now, she would sit with her glances hovering round the room, running from dusty molding to torn curtain frill, from a nail under the transom left over from the last Christmas to a worn patch on the oilcloth by the door, threadbare under so many thousand little footsteps, not worrying about them, but considering each well-known item almost amiable from familiarity, almost interested, as if considering anew how to fix up these things when fatigue had gone and the tea and rest had put new energy into her. Henny had never lived in an apartment. She was an old-fashioned woman. She had the calm of frequentation. She belonged to this house, and it to her. Though she was a prisoner in it, she possessed it. She and it were her marriage. She was indwelling in every board and stone of it. Every fold in the curtains had a meaning. Perhaps they were so folded to hide a darn or stain. Every room was a feel of revelation to be poured out some feverish night in the secret laboratories of her decisions, full of living cancers of insult, leprosies of disillusion, abscesses of grudge, gangrene of nevermore, quintin fevers of divorce, and all the proliferating miseries, the running sores and thick scabs for which, and not for its heavenly joys, the flesh of marriage is so heavily veiled and conventually interned. As Henny sat before her teacup, and the steam rose from it, and the treacherous foam gathered, uncollectable round its edge, the thousand storms of her confined life would rise up before her, thinner illusions on the steam. She did not laugh at the words, a storm in a teacup. Some raucous, cruel words about five cents misspent were as serious in a woman's life as a debate on war appropriations in Congress. All the Civil War of ten years roared into their smoky words when they shrieked, maddened at each other. All the snakes of hate hissed. Cells are covered with the rhymes of the condemned. So was this house with Henny's life sentence, invisible but thick as woven fabric. 
Here she sat to play solitaire, the late sun shining on the cards and on the green and red squares of the linoleum. When Sam was out, if Henny felt restless, she would take her double pack and shuffle them with a sound like a distant machine gun and worry and reshuffle and began to lay them out eagerly by fours. All the children watched and showed her where to lay the cards until she said, good-humoredly, Oh, go and put your head in a bag. And she taught Louie how to play, saying she must never touch them when her father was round, and that was all. Sam tried to impart everything he knew to the children and grumbled that the mother taught them nothing at all. Yet their influence on the boys and girls was equal. The children grabbed tricks and ideas according to the need of the day, without thinking at all of where they got them, without gratitude. And Henny saw this and so did not bother her head about her children. She herself belonged to a grabbing breed. Henny would also tell fortunes by the cards over her tea, though never for the children. While she was dealing to tell the fortune of Aunt Bonnie, Sam's 25-year-old sister, and their unpaid maid of all work, or Miss Spearing, Henny's old maid friend from school days, she would always begin a wonderful yarn about how she went to town, more dead than alive, and with only ten cents in my purse, and I wanted to crack a safe, and how in the streetcar was a dirty shrimp of a man with a fishy expression who purposely leaned over me and pressed my bust, and a common, vulgar woman beside him, an ogress, big as a hippopotamus, with her bottom sticking out who grinned like a shark and tried to give him the eye, and how this wonderful adventure went on for hours, always with new characters of new horror. In it would invariably be a woman with a cow-like expression, a girl looking frightened as a rabbit, a yellow-haired frump with hair like a haystack in a fit. Some woman who bored Henny with her silly gassing. And impudent, flighty young girls behind counters. And waitresses smelling like a tannery or a fish market who gave her lip. Which caused her to go to market and give them more than they bargained for. There were men and women, old acquaintances of hers or friends of Sam who presumed to know her to whom she would give the go-by, or the cold shoulder, or a distant bow, or a polite good day, or a black look, or a look black as thunder. And there were silly old roosters, creatures like a dying duck in a thunderstorm, filthy old pawers, and YMCA sick chickens, and women thin as a rail, and men fat as a pork barrel and women with blouses so puffed out that she wanted to stick pins in, and men like coal heavers, and women like boiled owl, owls, and women who had fallen into a flour barrel, and all these wonderful creatures 
who swarmed in the streets, stores, and restaurants of Washington, ogling, leering, pulling, pushing, stinking, over-scented, screaming and boasting, turning pale at a black look from Henny, ducking and diving, dodging and returning, were the only creatures that Henny ever saw. What a dreary, stodgy world of adults the children saw when they went out. And what a moral, high-minded world their father saw. But for Henny, there was a wonderful, particular world. And when they went with her, they saw it. They saw the fish eyes, the crocodile grins, the hair like a birch broom, the mean men crawling with maggots, and the children restless as an eel that she saw. She did not often take them with her. She preferred to go out by herself and mooch to the bargain basements and ask the young man in the library what was good to read and take tea in some obscure restaurant and wander desolately about, criticizing shop windows and wondering if, in this street or that, she would yet, old as I am and looking like a black hag, meet her fate. Then she would come home, next to some girl, from a factory who looked like a lily and smelled like a skunk cabbage, flirting with all the men, and the men grinning back, next to some coarse, dirty workman, who pushed against her in the car and smelled of sweat or some leering brute who tried to pay her fare. Louis would sit there on the end of the bench, lost in visions, wondering how she would survive if some leering brute shamefully tried to pay her fare in a public car, admiring Henny for her strength of mind in the midst of such scandals, and convinced of the dreary, insulting horror of the low-down world. For it was not Henny alone who went through this inferno, but every woman, especially, for example, Mrs. Wilson, the woman who came to wash every Monday. Mrs. Wilson, too, big as she was, big as an ox, was insulted by great big brutes of workmen with sweaty armpits who gave her a leer. And Mrs. Wilson, too, had to tell grocers where they got off. And she, too, had to put little half-starved cats of girls, thin as toothpicks, in their places. Mrs. Wilson, it was, who saw the ravishing Charlotte Bolton, daughter of the lawyer who lived in a lovely bungalow across the street. She saw my lady standing with her hands on her hips, waggling her bottom and laughing at a man like a common street girl, and he, black as the inside of a hat, with dark blood for sure. Louis and Evie and the obliging little boys, tugging at the piles of greasy clothes on Mondays, puffing under piles of new iron linen on Tuesdays, would be silent for hours, observing this world of tragic fairy in which all their adult friends lived. Sam, their father, 
had endless tales of friends, enemies, but most often they were good citizens, married to good wives with good children, though untaught. But never did Sam meet anyone out of Henny's world. Grotesque, foul, loud-voiced, rude, uneducated, and insinuating, full of scandal, slander, and filth, financially deplorable, and physically revolting, dubiously born, and going awry to a desquamating end. After Henny had talked her heart out to her sister, Aunt Hassie, or to Bonnie even, though she despised a pilot, or to her bosom friend, Miss Spearing, she would sometimes go, and after a silence, there would still through the listening house flights of notes, rounded as doves, willing over housetops in the sleeping afternoon, Chopin or Brahms, escaping from Henny's lingering, firm fingers. Sam could be vile, but always as a joke. Henny was beautifully, wholeheartedly vile. She asked no quarter and gave none to the foul world. And when she told her children tales of the villainies they could understand, it was not to corrupt them, but because for her, the world was really so. How could their father, said she, so fool them with his lies and nonsense? The chair and the slanting of the light, the endless, insoluble game of solitaire, were as comfortable to Henny's ravaged nerves as an eater down. In the warmth of the late afternoon, some time before she expected to hear the rush of feet, she would sit there at her third or fourth game and third or fourth cup of tea. So sitting, she would seem to herself to be bathing in the warm moisture of other summers. She would see the near rush or distant, slow-moving glitter on the steeps of North Charles Street, see the half-dry fountain with a boat in Utah Place, which could be seen from the front windows of the brownstone house Hassie had there, and the hot-smelling, rose-colored stoops flowing down and up the gully, see the masts of little boats and the barges, the sole twinkle of a car on the bridge, see the hot, washed windows of dressmakers and the tasseled curtains of a club, the dormant steps of little night bars, the yellow and pink of some afternoon tea place where she had gone with Hassie when she was a schoolgirl. Or, if the wind was high and her headache had not yet come on, she could smell the brackish and weakly salt streams of the Chesapeake, scudding in her cousin's twelve-footer, or her father's motorboat, feel the sounds and scents of Saturdays long swept away on the long rollers of years, when she was a thin-blooded, cockwoodish girl, making herself bleed at the nose for excitement, throwing herself on the lawns of Monacy in a tantrum, 
spitting fire at the servants, coaxing her father, waiting for the silly toys her father would buy her, engagement to a commercial fortune, marriage to a great name, some unexpected stroke of luck in blue-blooded romance, social fun, nursemaids, two fashionable children in pink and blue. These things surged out of the past as she sat there, but faintly, no more distinct than a wind that is blowing ten miles off and sometimes sends a puff of air. If she became conscious of these streams on the rainbow fringe of memory, she would bite her lip and flush, perhaps angry at her indulgent father for getting her the man she had got, angry at herself for having been so weak. Sadie was a lady, she would suddenly say in the stillness, and, hmm, or, if I had a Ladita like that to deal with, I'd drown her when a pup. Besides, she could not even now forget the humiliation of having her name five or six years in old social calendars among the eligibles, nor of having married a man who was, after all, a mere jog-trot subaltern bureaucrat dragged into the service in the lowest grades without a degree from mere practical experience in the Maryland Conservation Commission and who owed his jealousy-creating career to her father's influence in the lobbies of the Capitol. Soon Ernie, her favorite, would rush in, saying breathlessly, Did it come out, Moth? This kept her sitting there. While she sat and played, or did her microscopic darning, sometimes a small mouse would run past, or even boldly stand and inquisitively stare at her. Henny would look down at its monstrous, pointed little face calmly, and go on with her work, while it pretended to run off, and took another stand, still curious, behind another chair leg. The mice were well fed. They regularly set traps, but there was no coming to the end of the mice in that house. Henny accepted the sooty little beings as house guests and would only go on the warpath at night when she woke up suddenly to smell in the great hall or even in her own bedroom the musky, penetrating odor of their passage or when she looked at her little spectator and saw that it was a pregnant mother. She would have accepted everything else, too. The winds, the rattlings and creakings of the old house, the toothaches and headaches, the insane anxieties about cancer and TB, too. All house guests, if she could have, and somewhere between all these hustlers, made herself a little life. But she had the children, she had a stepdaughter. She had no money, and she had to live with a man who fancied himself a public character and a moralist of a very saintly type. The moralist said mice brought germs, and so she was obliged to chase the mouse and all its fellow guests. Nevertheless, 
Although she despised animals, she felt involuntarily that the little marauder was much like herself, trying to get by. She belonged to the great race of human beings who regard life as a series of piracies of all powers. She would play on and on till her cheeks got hot and then call for another cup of tea or else go and get herself some store cheese and Worcestershire sauce in a plate, pushing the cards aside. I wish your mother would stop playing patience. It makes her look like an old witch or an old vixen possum, Sam would say in a gently benevolent voice in some off-stage colloquy if he ever came home and found her still at it. It did exhaust her in the end. She played feverishly until her mind was a darkness, until all the memories and the ease had long since drained away. And then when the father came home, the children who had been battling and shuttling around her would all rush off like water down the sink, leaving her sitting there, with blackened eyes, a yellow skin, and straining wrinkles. And she would think of the sink and mutter, as she did at this moment, a dirty, cracked plate. That's just what I am. What did you say, Mummy? asked little Sam. She looked at him, the image of his father, and repeated, I'm a greasy old soup plate making them all laugh, laughing herself. Mother, you're so silly, Evie said. Henny got up and moved into her room. It was a large room taking up a quarter of the original ground floor plan, with two windows facing the east and one window on the front lawn, but screened from R Street by the double hedges. Although the room was furnished, with the walnut suite that she had brought from home and the double bed which she now used alone, there was plenty of room for their play. Henny sat down at the dressing table to take off her hat. They clustered round the silver littered table, picked up her rings. What did you buy, mother? Someone persisted. Mother, can I have a nickel? Henny said, fluffing out the half-gray curls round her face. I asked my mother for fifty cents to see the elephant jump the fence. Shoo, get out. You wretched limpets never give me a minute to myself. Mother, can I have a nickel, please? Mother, what did you buy? Chanted Henny's baby, Tommy, a dark four-year-old boy with shining almond eyes and a skull cap of curls. Meanwhile, he climbed on the dressing table and, after studying her reflection for a long time in the mirror, kissed it. Look, Moth, Tommy kissed you in the glass. They laughed at him while he, much flattered, blushed and leaned over to kiss her, giving her a hearty smack-smack while he watched himself in the mirror. Oh, you kissing bug! It's unlucky for two to look in the same glass. Now get down and get out. Go and feed the darn animals and then come and wash your hands for dinner. The flood receded, leaving Henny high and dry again. She sighed 
and got out the letter she had received that afternoon, reading it carefully. At the end, she folded it again, said with a sneer and a greasy finger mark from his greasy, hypocritical mauler right in the middle. The sight of his long, pious cheeks like suet and her fat red face across the table from each other. She looked at the letter thoughtfully for a while, turning it over, got out her fountain pen, and started a reply. But she tore her sheet of paper across, spat on the soiled letter, and picking it up with a pair of curling tongs, burned it and her few scratchings in a little saucepan, which had boiled dry on the radiator. The letter was from her eldest brother, Norman Collier. It refused to lend her money and said, somewhere near the offensive finger mark, You should be able to manage. Your husband is making about 8000 yearly, and you always got lucky dips anyhow, being father's pet. I can only give you some good advice, which doubtless you will not follow, knowing you as I do. That is... Draw on your horns, retrench somehow, don't go running up accounts, and don't borrow from moneylenders. I've seen my own family half-starving. What do you think I can make out of the job father gives me? You must get out of your own messes. The trouble is, you never had to pay for your mistakes before. Henny opened her windows to let the smoke out and then began taking trinkets out of her silver jewel case and looking at them discontentedly. She threw open the double doors of her linen closet and rummaged amongst the sheets, pulling out first a library book and then two heavy silver soup ladles and six old silver teaspoons. She looked at them indifferently for a moment, and then stuck them back in their hiding place. She let Louis give the children their dinner, and ate hers on a tray in her bedroom, distractedly figuring on a bit of envelope. When she brought her tray out to the kitchen, Louis was slopping dishes about in the sink. Henny cried, Take your fat belly out of the sink! Look at your dress! Oh my God! Now I've got to get you another one clean and dry for Monday. You'll marry a drunkard when you grow up, always wet in front. Ernie, help Louis with the washing up, and you others make yourselves scarce. And turn off the darn radio. It's enough when Mr. Big Me is at home blowing off steam. They ran out cheerfully, while Louis drooped her underlip and tied a towel round her waist. Henny sighed picked up the cup of tea that Louis had just poured out for her and went into her bedroom, next door to the kitchen. She called from there, Ernie, bring me your pants and I'll mend them. There's time, he shouted considerately. You don't need to tonight. Tomorrow's Sunday fun day and we're painting the house. I'll wear my overalls. Did you hear what I said? Okay. He shed his trousers at once and rushed into her, holding them at arm's length. He stood beside her for a moment, watching her pinch the cloth together. I bet I could do that easy, Mom. Why don't you teach me? Thank you, my son, 
but mother will do it while she has the strength. Are you sick today, mother? Mother's always sick and tired, she said gloomily. Will I bring you my shawl, mother? This was his baby shawl that he always took to bed with him when he felt sick or weepy. No, son. She looked at him straight, as if at a stranger, and then drew him to her, kissing him on the mouth. Your mother's blessing. Go and help Louis. He cavorted and dashed out, hooting. She heard him in half a minute, chattering away affectionately to his half-sister. But I should have been better off if I'd never laid eyes on any of them, Henny grumbled to herself as she put on her glasses and peered at the dark surge. And so comes to a close another episode of It's in a Book. Now, the title of this episode is A Family Affair, but uh, something that we flirted with tentatively is the one that got away because uh, I don't know if you noted when you downloaded it, uh, but this episode is one hour and 30 minutes long. Uh, way too long, but we got a little carried away with the interview and uh, a couple of other rants that I uh, went on during the recording, and uh, like I said, this one really got away. So, um, one possible remedy to that, in fact, the thing that we're going to do is to cut the reading section down to about 15 minutes, maybe a small like 20 minutes, uh, which will bring the podcast to about an hour, uh, and we're going to have both versions available for download on the webpage. So you can download the one hour and one half version if, like myself, you have a pretty long commute, or if you, uh, you know, just the absolute limit you can stand of listening to me babble, uh, or anything for that matter, is an hour, then the one hour version will be available as well right underneath it. So, um, lots of uh, housekeeping stuff to attend to, but with, uh, or to which to attend, I suppose. Uh, but with, uh, you know, having already run over on time, we'll just take care of it on the website. So take a, a look there at the liner notes uh, slash book jacket for this, uh, for this podcast. Then you'll be able to see some uh, additional information that, uh, that we have there. So, uh, thanks again for uh, coming along to listen. And now... We will be played out to Louie Louie uh, in honor of the title character of uh, the man who loved children, um, who, like I said, we pretty much believe is uh, Christina Stead, uh, you know, fictionalized. So, uh, thanks again. It's in a book. See you in a fortnight. So I want to say it, and then I want you to say it, okay? All right, so you ready? All right, let me see if I can find it here. Okay, so it goes like this. Happy families are all alike.
Say happy families are all alike. Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Somebody's unhappy in their own way. <laughs> okay, let's try again. You ready? Happy families are all alike. <laughs> Say it. Happy families are all alike. <laughs> Say it. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Hold on, come on, we gotta go to bed. Sit. Happy families are all alike. Um, happy families are all alike. Okay, now. Okay, now say this. Every unhappy family. Say it. Every unhappy family. Take that out of your mouth. Every unhappy family. Unhappy family. No, come on, say it. Every unhappy family. Hold on, get that out of your mouth before you swallow it. Don't put that in your mouth. Every unhappy family. Unhappy family. Oh, then come on, we gotta go to bed. Say it. Every unhappy family. Unhappy. You have to say every. Say every. Every. Unhappy family. Every unhappy family. Is unhappy. It's very unhappy. In its own way. <laughs> in its own silly way. You're silly. Come on. All right. Happy families are all alike. Don't put this in your mouth, son. I just told you that. You're going to swallow it. Do you, look at this. This is plastic. Don't ever put those in your mouth. It's too small. Okay? Okay. All right. Now, say Every unhappy family. Every unhappy family. Is unhappy. Is unhappy. In its own way. In its own way. Oh, thanks, buddy. You think you can say it all together? Yeah. Try it. Say, every unhappy family, every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. It's unhappy in its own way. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Tomorrow I'll let you hear how that sounds.